Amen. Thank you, Brother Ron and music ministry. And I was just thinking as we were singing that chorus, take joy, my king, in what you hear. Let me ask you this question. Did the Lord take joy in what he heard from you this morning? I'm talking about in the song service. How about this? Did he take joy in what he heard from you on the way into church this morning? <laughs> Sometimes that can be a problem too, can it? Sunday mornings can be somewhat stressful. I don't know why that is. We normally get out the door every other morning by about 7.30, but for whatever reason, we struggle on Sunday morning to get here by 10.15, and sometimes that leads to maybe a little bit of conflict in the vehicle as we're on our way in. Uh, But what a great thought. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. He's listening, isn't he? He knows what, what we're saying, what we're thinking. May it be, may it be a sweet, sweet sound in his ears. Well, it is great for me uh, to be back with you. Last Sunday, the Lord uh, allowed me the opportunity to uh, be over in Indianapolis, Indiana. And my uh, brother's an assistant pastor at the Lighthouse Baptist Church over there. And uh, they had a men's conference that I was privileged to be able to preach at. And then they asked me to stick around and preach on Sunday. And so we enjoyed time with our family, and I heard great reports of uh, what the Lord did here, and, uh, but we're excited to be back and looking forward to jumping right back into our study in the life of Joseph. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd invite you to take them and go with me to Genesis chapter number 42, please, the 42nd chapter in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter number 42, and we're going to begin our reading here in verse number 6, and we'll read down through verse number 21, but with the Lord's help, we'll preach through a significant portion of this chapter. Genesis chapter number 42. Look with me, if you would, in verse number six. And Joseph was the governor over the land. And he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew not him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them and said unto them, Ye are spies, to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. And they said unto him, Nay, my Lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. We are all one man's sons. We are true men. Thy servants are no spies. And he said unto them, Nay, but to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. And they said, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. Joseph said unto them, That is it that I spake unto you, saying, Ye are spies. Hereby ye shall be proved. By the life of Pharaoh ye shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come hither. Send one of you and let him fetch your brother and ye shall be kept in prison that your words may be proved whether there be any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely ye are spies. And he put them all together into ward three days. Joseph said unto them the third day, this do and live for I fear God. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye, carry corn for the famine of your houses, but bring your youngest brother unto me so shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. And they did so. And they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. 
Years ago, as a fourth grade boy, student myself, I gotten into a period in which I had sown several weeks of half-hearted schoolwork leading to missed assignments, failed tests and quizzes, and just, just a, a general sense in which I just really didn't give a whole lot of interest at all in school and in work and in my responsibilities. And one day in the midst of this season that I was in, that I remember so vividly, while sitting at the dinner table eating dinner with my family on a Wednesday night, I still remember it was a Wednesday evening, the phone rang. That time we sat just off of our kitchen as a family, we sat at a round table, and as fate would have it, my chair, because every, just like you have your own chair at church, you have your own chair at home, I'm sure, and my chair sat closest to the phone that hung on the wall. And so as the phone began to ring, I was closest to it, I reached over and I grabbed it, and I fairly nonchalantly answered, and I gave my normal response that I would give, and, and on the other end of the line was my teacher. Those were the days before caller ID. That didn't exist. You didn't know who was calling. Had I, had I known who was calling, I, I might have like, you know, sales call, I guess, you know, no, no, no need to answer this one, but it was my teacher. Her name was Mrs. Martone. She was my fourth grade teacher, and she had put up with my haphazard, careless schoolwork long enough. (laughs) She was normally a very sweet lady, but she didn't sound very sweet that day when she called. She sounded fairly upset. She was very stern, and she said, Peter, can I talk to your father? I knew exactly what she wanted. (laughs) I, I, I didn't have to peer inside of her mind. I knew why she was calling. You see, I was the only one of my father's sons who was a student in her class at that point in time. And I knew, I knew what I had been doing over the last several weeks. And so instantly the color drained out of my face. I handed the phone to my dad and I said, it's for you. He answered it and right then and there I knew the games I had been playing were over. To be frank, I have to be honest with you, I wondered if my life was also going to be over as well. As I watched my dad as he talked, and he got a very serious look on his face, and then that serious look on his face transitioned to me, and he began to look at me, and I literally thought, not only are the games over, but my life is over too. Everything she was telling my father about me in that phone call was true. I was guilty of every accusation that she was making. Over a period of weeks, I had been lazy careless, irresponsible, and even deceitful. I would learn a very painful lesson during that season that I still remember so vividly today, and that is this. It is not fun to be guilty. It's not enjoyable to be guilty of some misdeed, of some sin, or some wickedness. Likely as you've looked at this passage of Scripture, and you know perhaps this, uh, this story, the, the lives of Joseph's brothers as they acknowledge and admit their guilt in verse number 21. Perhaps maybe you thought to yourself, I've been there. I know how that feels. I know what that's like to, uh, to know that I, am, uh, that I am guilty because of some 
wickedness that I've done or some sin that I've done. You see, it is not possible to live down here on this earth and to live this life uh, without being guilty of something because we are all fallen. We are all broken sinners by nature. In this room are perhaps many who bear some guilt over some deed done, whether maybe in the recent past or perhaps in your distant memory. And and the reason you still feel that today is because it has not yet fully been dealt with. This could be a word spoken that you've you've said to someone and, and, and the moment it came out of your mouth, you knew immediately I've gone too far. I've said something that I should have never said. And we can utter those famous words, I take it back, or I'm sorry, or I didn't really mean it. But at this, at that point in time, the words have been spoken. It's too late. Could be something that you did. Maybe intentionally. Maybe you stole something. Maybe it's some type of immoral sin that you've committed that no one knows about. Maybe it's some physical act of violence. Maybe it was something that you did that you didn't intend to do, but yet you still did it. You didn't maybe even know in the moment that it was wrong, and yet you bear some sense of guilt over it. Maybe it was something that you should have done, but you didn't. You see, the Bible says to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. So perhaps maybe someone in this room bears the guilt of knowing they should have done something, but they didn't do it. Maybe it was to speak a kind word. Maybe it was even to share the gospel. And you missed or you did not take advantage of that opportunity. And maybe you didn't realize it then, but you realize that now it would be the last opportunity that you would get to share Christ with an individual. The family, the brothers of Joseph, were guilty of a great many things. Let's just consider this family for a moment. Did you know that Joseph's brothers slew a whole community of men in retaliation for the fact that that community, some in that community had taken their sister's virginity? Did you know that Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, was carrying on the immoral relationship with his father's wife? Judah, Judah, Joseph's brother, he conceived conceived a child with his own daughter-in-law when she disguised herself as a harlot, according to Genesis 38. Jacob had a list of his own sins that was quite lengthy as well. He stole his brother's birthright and blessing. He he deceived and took advantage of his father-in-law while making himself quite wealthy. And he left his father-in-law one day taking his wives and his children without ever saying a proper goodbye. The list of Jacob's sins and the sins of his sons is quite lengthy, But when we come to Genesis chapter number 42, they're not thinking about those things. As all of these things begin to unfold in their lives, there's one thing that they say we're guilty of. And it's listed for us in verse number 21. They're standing before the governor of Egypt, who, by the way, was the very brother that they were talking about, but they didn't realize it. Joseph spake roughly to them. He disguised himself to them. And they're standing before him. They've been accused of being spies. And they're placed in prison based on this suspicion. And I have to tell you, they face a very uncertain future. The uncertain future sort of that I faced at the, at the dining room table that night. Wondering, you know, what's the next few hours going to hold for me? And these brothers are sitting here and they're wondering, okay, where do we go from here? More than two decades have passed since they did what they did to Joseph. And yet, and yet at the first sign of trouble, they acknowledge and they admit, we are guilty. Well, what are you guilty of? 
were guilty of what we did to our brother. It was never fully dealt with. It was never properly dealt with. We say, well, what exactly did they confess to being guilty of? Well, first of all, they confessed that they had seen the anguish of his soul and they were unmoved by it. Look, it says in verse number 21, they said, we're guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul. That day that they sold their brother, there was a fear in Joseph's eyes that they'd never seen before. A fear so intense and real that some 20 years later, they still remembered it vividly. It was as if that day they could see into his very soul. What could they see? Anguish, distress, of great fear and uncertainty. And yet their hatred and their envy of him allowed them to ignore this look in the moment, but they could not ignore it for the next 20 years. It would stay with them as they would close their eyes perhaps every night. They would see the look upon Joseph's face. They would see the anguish of his soul and they perhaps would have wondered and would have regretted and would have wished that they could go back time and again. I wish we would never have done what we did, but it was too late. They were guilty. They said not only did we see the anguish of his soul and we were unmoved, But they said in verse 21 that we had heard his cry for help, but we refused to listen. Verse 21 says, we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. I'll see, it's not just a a look mentally in their eyes that they saw or in their mind, but as it would get real quiet in the alone moments of their life, You could hear a faint sound. What is that? Oh yeah, it's Joseph. He's crying out for help. I hate to say it, but I sort of wish I could go back and I wish I would have listened to him cry in that moment. It's too late, I'll never see him again. He's probably dead and gone now for all I know. They refer to him as as just, he is not. In their minds, we don't know what became of him but we can still see him in the quietest and darkest moments of our life. We can still hear his voice crying out to us and we did nothing and we're guilty. Notice there's a third thing that they confessed or that is seemingly part of this confession and that is this, that they were warned not to proceed, but they ignored the warning. Look in verse 22. Reuben answered them saying, Spake I not unto you saying, Do not sin against the child and you would not hear you know there's always that one guy right you know when everybody's beating themselves up over i told you told you you shouldn't have done that reuben was right he had told them he had warned them he had tried to intervene don't don't do this you see initially they spoke of actually killing him they decided not to kill him. We'll sell him instead. We'll make a little profit off of him and it'll basically accomplish the same thing. We don't have to ever worry about seeing him again. And Reuben all along was that, was, that, was that voice of conscience saying, guys, don't do it. Don't take advantage of your brother like this. He says, I warned you and yet you would not listen. You know, our guilt is always bad when we go off into sin on our own and we go off into wickedness and 
and we do what we shouldn't do. But can I tell you, it is compounded. It is compounded when, uh, when we're warned uh, when we're warned by someone, maybe God puts someone in our way. It could be a parent. It could be a, a preacher. It could be a friend, a counselor, or some authority figure who tries to warn us, hey, don't do this. Don't go down this path. Stay away from this. Don't involve yourself in this. Reuben was that, was that voice. Perhaps right now some of you are contemplating a certain thing, a certain habit, a certain practice, You've been tempted by it. It's an area of weakness for you. And maybe, maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a close friend. Maybe a coworker. And someone is in your ear and they're saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Understand that's the warning. God has been gracious to give you a warning. And understand this, if you decide to go forward with it, and if you decide to participate in it, your guilt, listen, will be compounded. It will be intensified. When you remember, God was gracious to me to put someone in my life to warn me, and I would not listen. Their confession was good. It was. I, I think this is the first step right here to God doing a work of healing. But I have to tell you, it was 20 years too late. For 20 years, they had carried this secret and it grew to be an overwhelming burden for them, affecting them in different and various ways. Recently, someone gave me a newspaper article, and it was entitled, Things That Weigh More the Longer You Carry Them. This is one of those things, guilt. The longer you hold on to this guilt, the longer you refuse to release it, to confess and to repent and to get right with God, the heavier it becomes. Consider in this story how their guilt affected them. Even Jacob was, felt a sense of guilt as we, as we study this text. Notice, notice that Jacob's guilt kept him from allowing Benjamin, his youngest, to fully live his life. Would you look with me in verse number three of Genesis 42? And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. Notice verse four. But Benjamin... Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, lest peradventure mischief befall him. That's implied here, but I get the sense that Jacob feels a sense of guilt. Because 20 years ago, he had sent his son Joseph to go check on his brothers. And he sent him by himself, and Joseph never returned from that trip. Now, Jacob doesn't know the rest of the story at this point in time. He thinks, he thinks that while he was alone, a wild beast got a hold of him and tore him in pieces. Because as far as Jacob knows, all that he has left from that trip was the torn coat that is blood-stained that his sons brought back with him. He doesn't know. He doesn't know what Jacob's, what his sons did to their brother that they sold him into slavery because of their hatred and their envy for him. But in his mind, he thinks, I'm responsible. If I would have just gone with him that day, two are better than one. We, we, could have, we could have fought that wild beast off together. If I, would have just, if I would have just sent him with some of my servants, or if I would have not sent him at all, he would still be with me. And Jacob bears, I, I gather that Jacob bears a sense of guilt. And you know, because of that, he says to Benjamin, you're not leaving my sight. I refuse to allow you out of my presence 
You must be with me at all times. The last time I sent a son away from me, the youngest son of my, of my favorite wife, because that's who Joseph was, I lost him for good. I'm not going down that path again. And so Jacob's guilt kept him from allowing Benjamin to fully live his life. But notice guilt here of Joseph's brothers. It, it led them to view bad things as a form of retribution. You see, when you carry guilt and you don't get right and you don't give it to the Lord and get right with the person that you sinned against, here's how you begin to think. The mind begins to think this way, that every bad thing that happens is some form of retribution, some form of punishment, some form of of consequence because of what you did. It may have nothing to do with that whatsoever, but that's how the mind thinks. You'll discover that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he had, a, he had his disciples come to him. They had encountered a man that was born blind. And they came to Jesus and they said, Lord, they said, who, who sinned? Who, who's, who's, who's guilty here? This man or his parents that he, that he has to deal with his blindness? They're thinking what mankind tempts to think is tempted to think, and that is this, that somebody, somebody had to do something really, really bad for this to unfold the way that it unfolded. And you know what Jesus answered? Jesus said it had nothing to do with, now that he's not saying that these, these parents of this man aren't guilty of anything. He's saying that the, the illness, the sickness, the blindness had nothing to do with this man's sin or his parents' sin. And I just have to tell you, listen, listen, folks, Not everything that happens in life that is bad is because you've done something wicked or awful. And yet, and yet, when we do not deal with our sin, when we do not repent of our sin, when we carry that guilt, you will find yourself thinking, because I never dealt with this the right way. I bet, I bet this is, we sometimes use the word karma. This is coming back to me. I just have to tell you, listen, when you live in a broken world, you could, live a, you could live a perfect life. Jesus did, and look what happened to him. I'm just simply saying not every bad thing that happens in this life or in this world is because you've done something horrible. Sometimes it's because somebody else has done something horrible, and sometimes it's just because that's the consequences of living life in a very broken world. But when you, when, listen, when you carry guilt with you, when you carry guilt with you, you'll, you'll begin to think, Oh man, every time I encounter something bad, it's because I've done something that I haven't gotten right. Notice guilt led them not only to view bad things as a form of retribution, but you know that guilt led them to even to view unexpected blessings fearfully. In verse number 28, the Bible tells us that as they were on their return trip, Joseph had done something unbeknownst to them. He had instructed his servants, hey, listen, the money that they spent to buy corn, put it back in their bags. They didn't know that. They got on the road back to Canaan, and then they, they stopped one night to uh, take a break. And one of the, one of the brothers was, was going to get some grain out of his bag to serve to his, his beast that he was traveling with. And when he, un, when he untied his bag and he opened it, he peered inside. And do you know what he found in there? Found his money. His money. And you know what he immediately thought? He thought to himself, oh boy, this isn't good. Now, let me ask you this question. When you're walking down the street and you spy $20 on the ground and you pick that up, do you think, oh boy, this isn't good? No. Are you kidding? Most of us do a happy dance in that moment, don't we? I found $20. This is awesome. What am I going to buy with this? I didn't expect this. 
Every once in a while, my, my, my kids or myself will reach into our pocket, we'll have put our clothes away, not realizing that maybe we had left a, some money in there, and we'll reach, hey, I didn't expect to find this. What a, what a cool thing. But you'll discover in verse 28 and verse number 35, when they discovered their money had been returned to them, the Bible says they were filled with fear. Listen, when you're guilty, even good things that happen that are unexpected, sometimes they can fill your heart with fear and anxiety. Here, here's why, because guilty people are constantly looking over their shoulder and they're wondering, when is this evil deed going to catch up with me? It's quite evident that the guilt within this family has brought them to a breaking point. In this chapter, God has set a plan in motion to begin to deal with their guilt once and for all. They do not realize it yet, but the man standing before them, accusing them of being spies, is the same man showing them mercy by not forcing them all to prison, is the same man who restores their money to their sacks. He's the very one they betrayed and that they bear such a great sense of guilt about. Joseph is all of these things to them. And God, listen, God is at work behind the scenes to help them find freedom from their guilt once and for all as he longs to do in the lives of each and every one of us. See, some of you come into this room today bearing some guilt over something and I really believe this. I believe the God of heaven has brought you here. And his intention is that you deal with this today. Get it settled today. Don't hold on to it any longer. Make it right. I want you to consider the following observations about guilt. And then I want you to consider some instruction on what to do with your guilt as we conclude our time together this morning. Can I say, first of all, number one, we are all guilty. We're all guilty. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse number 20, the Bible says, For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Romans 3, verses 9 to 12, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. That same chapter, verse 23, the Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. First John chapter 1 and verse number 8, the Bible says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Do you get the picture? We're all guilty. Oh, you may not have messed up as badly as I did in fourth grade. But you're still guilty of something. Some of you, maybe you're carrying something that you don't want anybody to know about. You're, th you're thinking, I'm glad I'm not the preacher because the preacher has to tell everybody his sins, you know. I may not know what you've done. And maybe, it is, maybe, it is, maybe it is worse than being careless and lazy and deceitful in fourth grade. But I have to tell you, I'm just as guilty as you are. We're all guilty. There, there's none. There is none that lives upon this earth that can, can rightfully say, I've not done anything wrong. In fact, those that say that, there may be someone in here saying, he doesn't know me, I've never sinned. You know what the Bible says about you? You're deceiving yourself. You're lying to yourself. I think about it, it's one thing to lie to someone. It's another thing to lie to God. But think about it, lying to yourself? What a silly thing. You know, that's what God says you're doing if you claim that you have no sin. Hey, we are, we're all guilty. The Bible is clear on this. 
We tend to compare our sins with others in an effort to feel better about ourselves, but the truth remains, you are a sinner, and you bear the guilt of that sin. Can I say secondly, as we think about this idea of guilt, that the passing of time does nothing to ease or to erase our guilt. See, in, in some respects we think, well, you know, I feel really bad about this right now, but that's because it just happened. Give it, a, give it a month or two, give it a year or two, and I'll be over it. Really? Joseph's brothers would beg to differ. They're 20 years beyond this. And as this begins to come back to them, their response immediately is, we are guilty. What are you guilty of? I can still, I can still see the anguish of his soul. I can still hear the cry that I refuse to listen to. I can still remember my brother warning me not to do this, and yet I did it anyways. The passing of time does nothing to erase our guilt. Though more than 20 years had elapsed, these men are, 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 are overwhelmed by their guiltiness. For 20 years, they had looked over their shoulder in fear, and now the time had finally come because it always comes. The Bible is clear, isn't it? That God doesn't miss anything. He sees it all. That be sure your sins will find you out. In Job 4 and verse number 8, even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Now what is a principle of sowing and reaping that you should know? You should know one of the great principles is this. We do not, we do not reap at the same time that we sow. There's usually a time in between. And that time in between, listen, it could either discourage you when you've sown good things and you haven't reaped anything good, or, or it could embolden you to think, I've gotten away with this. Because we go a period of time and we've sown some wickedness, we've sown some evil into our lives, and yet nothing has come. There's not been a reaping period yet. There's not been a harvest. But listen, mark it down. There is always a harvest. Always. But there is a distance in between the day that we that we sow and the day that we reap. In Joseph's brother's case, it was 20 years. In your case, it might be longer, it might be shorter, but mark it down, the passing of time does nothing to erase our guilt. Hosea 8 and verse number seven, the Bible says, for they have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. You know, another principle of sowing and reaping is that you reap more than you sow. You see, I, I put one little thing in the ground and it grows up to become something much bigger and something much greater with lots of seed in it. And the same thing is true, that when you sow the wind, you're gonna reap the whirlwind. Some, perhaps maybe even in this room this morning, are sowing the wind. In your mind, you're thinking, well, nothing's happened to me yet, so I'm gonna keep on sowing, and I'm here. God has sent me here to warn you, like God sent Reuben to his brothers to warn them and to say, hold on a minute. Think, think a second time about this, because it may not work the way that you think it's going to work. Galatians 6, 7, and 8, be not deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever a man soweth that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Did it feel good in that moment to sell Joseph into slavery? Did it feel good to ignore his cries, to ignore the, soul, the look of anguish in his soul? Did that feel good for them in that moment? Absolutely, because they were filled with hatred and rage and envy against him. But 20 years later, did it feel good? No, they had, they had sowed to their flesh. They did in that moment what felt good, what seemed good, what seemed right. But, but later on, later on, what was, what was the consequence? 
They wept, they wept, they, they, they were reaping corruption. Notice thirdly, you are not, listen, you are not equipped to deal with your guilt alone. You can't forgive yourself. You can't erase the memories of what you've done or what you didn't do. You can't make anything better that you destroyed in the first place. You can't deal with your sin and wickedness in your own strength and power. Over time, the burden of guilt doesn't get lighter, but it gets heavier. Your body, your mind, and your soul are not equipped to carry this load. It will destroy you. Those who try to carry it live miserable lives and often lead those around them to live miserable lives too. I just have to believe that for the better part of 20 years, Jacob's home was a miserable place. Don't you think? Because everybody carried secrets. Wicked, awful, horrible, despicable things that they had done, but they refused to tell anybody else about it. We're carrying the secret on our own. We don't want anybody to know. Don't you suppose that was a pretty miserable place to live? Think about your home. Are you carrying some guilt that you just refuse to acknowledge and to get right? And as a result, your children are paying the price. Your spouse is paying the price. Maybe even your church is paying the price because you're just a miserable person to be around. That's how it works. You are not equipped to deal with your guilt. The most miserable people I know are those who carry guilt and shame from past transgressions. It destroys them mentally, relationally, physically, and spiritually. You know, God created us to live free from sin. He warned, listen, he warned that the wages of sin is death. But you know as well as I do that man ignored his warnings. The Bible says in Romans chapter five and verse number 12, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. James 1, 14 and 15 says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. All of us are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We make, we make the personal choice to hold on to our sin and wickedness and its accompanying guilt, or we make the choice to release that. Those who refuse to repent and deal properly with their sinful guilt will discover that it eventually leads to a sorrowful life and a pitiful death that comes far too soon and lasts far too long. You're not equipped to deal with your guilt. And yet we try to, don't we? Fourthly and finally this morning, I believe we learned from this story that this thought, that is this, bring your guilt and your shame to Jesus and leave it there. In the days to come, these brothers will discover that the governor of the land who is accusing them of being spies is actually Joseph himself the brother whom they betrayed, the brother that they saw the anguish of his soul, they heard his cries for help, and they did nothing. What they don't know is that Joseph has come to understand by now, but the 20 years of, of life that he's lived has helped to reveal to him that God was at work using all of these things. And even though he went through much heartache and much betrayal, that God was doing something, and as a result of this understanding, he is prepared to forgive them. We see evidence of his heart of love for his brothers in verse 23. Look what it says there. It says, and they knew not that Joseph understood them for he spake unto them by an interpreter and he turned himself about from them and wept. In a similar way, the judge of all the earth, the one we have betrayed and sinned against 
wants also to bestow his grace and mercy on us as well. Joseph was their accuser as all that they had done had been against him, but at the same time, he was their restorer. He was the one who was responsible for feeding them, restoring their money to them, and he's eventually going to give them a home and a future during a very difficult time. Jesus, the sinless son of God, knows every wicked deed you've ever done, and yet he still longs to forgive you, to wash away your guilty stains, and to restore you to a position of life and hope for the future. He alone can do this because of what he did for us on the cross. Psalm 102, verse 17, the Bible says, he will regard the prayer of the destitute and not repentance and faith. Isaiah 118 says, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. A little boy was visiting his grandparents and he was given his first slingshot. He practiced using that slingshot in the woods, but he could never hit his target, and his fate would have it. As he was making his way back to his grandmother's backyard, he spied her pet duck. On an impulse, he took aim with that slingshot, and he let it fly. And wouldn't you know, the stone hit the target, and the duck fell dead. The boy, little boy, panicked. Desperately, he hid the dead duck in the woodpile, only to look up and see his sister watching. Sally, his sister, she had seen it all, but she said nothing. After lunch that day, Grandma said, Sally, let's wash the dishes. But Sally said, Johnny told me he wanted to help in the kitchen today. (laughs) Didn't you, Johnny? And she whispered to him, remember the duck. So Johnny did the dishes. Later, Grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing. Grandma said, I'm sorry, but I need Sally to help make supper. Sally smiled once again and said, That's all taken care of. Johnny really wants to do it. Again, she whispered, remember the duck. Johnny stayed while Sally went fishing. After several days of Johnny doing both his chores and Sally's, finally he couldn't stand it any longer. He confessed to Grandma. He killed her pet duck. I know, Johnny, she said, giving him a hug. I was standing at the window and saw the whole thing. Because I love you, I forgave you. I wondered how long you would let Sally make a slave of you. A church family, I wonder how long you're gonna let the guilt of your past make a slave of you. Got something in your life that needs to be dealt with? Now's the time. Today's the day. Release it. Let it go. Say, but nobody knows. Oh, there was a God who stood and watched what you did. He already knows. Just bring it to him. Release it. Let it go and get right with God. Every individual ever born is guilty. Our guilt destroys our body, our soul, and our spirit. We like to think, you know, just give me enough time and I'll get over this. And I won't have to think about it anymore. That's simply not the case. You and I are not equipped to deal with our guilt and sin. It will make a slave out of us. But I have good news. Hebrews 7.25 says, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost. You know what that means? That means the worst sinner, the most guilty person in this room, Christ is able to save and he's able to set free. He's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment.